right, everybody, welcome back to Flow 4. We're still talking about advising players and teaching how to role play. I'm Fred, and I have with me Carr. Hello. And Kat. Hello. And Jonathan. Hey, y'all. And Cavoir. Yeah, hi. And Mark. Still here. And Roberto. Hey, everybody. All right. So when we last left off, we were talking about what players need to know. And so the next thing we're going to talk about kind of was bled into by that, because we're going to talk about what are players' rights and responsibilities. So basically, what should players be doing? So players, again, are defined as all the participants who are playing the game and are interacting with the rules and most likely with the other people who are around the table. Jonathan, it sounds like you have something to say about this. What do you think? Um, I was hoping to have better words, but um, I think the basics are uh, players' rights are safety. Uh, and I'm having trouble elaborating in my head, so I'll let everyone else who has to comment on safety do that for me. And uh, responsibilities uh, with the context of playing the game are to engage with the narrative. Okay. So uh, talking about safety, um, I'm assuming you're, t- you're talking about um, generally people around the table respecting you and your possible problems and not you know, overstepping boundaries, um, crossing those lines and veils uh, that you have created or that you are cr- kind of playing with as you go along. Exactly. And, yeah. A big piece of it is just good manners. Yeah, and just generally being good manners. Yeah. It, it is, but that's it's it's too easy to say at the beginning of the game, okay, we're just going to play with good manners or whatever, right? Like, yeah, we actually need to know the things that... Um, what do people consider good manners? We need, we need a mechanism to be safe. Uh, yeah. Because we... We don't know the things we don't know. Yep. We need to is, be safe. Is safety, the, is safety even the right thing to use here, or is something less yeah, narrow, safety like comfort, like really... the right thing to do? Um, that, I think that that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, for me, that, that ran I'm, perfectly well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, comfort, yeah. I mean, if you're playing, for example, Call of Cthulhu, which I've never played, but since it's a horror game, you could be uncomfortable in the sense of like, you know, tense or scared, but you've bought into that. So I, I don't know. I think safety is the word that I picked and maybe, and it's often used for quote safety tools, but it maybe it doesn't have to be that word as long as it's still sort of taken care of with the same uh, vigor, I guess. As, yeah, as long as there are good manners and a general respect for the fact that sometimes because role-playing games are very emergent, you can get into topics that people that might make people feel unsafe or very uncomfortable and an understanding and some mechanism for defining those and not then pushing on those. Something, you know, for example, like the X card or uh, like Lines and Veils. Totally getting into reciting recipes. Or, We're going to have a cookie recipe other... at the end of this episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, or the other, the other 
path that I think I, that I personally like better is the the I will not abandon you mm-hmm. philosophy that along with lines and veils it, or it's, it's a different take on it where it's like if we get into a intense scene and uh, one of us starts to you know be uncomfortable what we're going to do is we're going to write it out and I will not abandon you and then when I get into that scene you will not abandon me it's it's a I, I like the idea of mutual support rather than and camaraderie yeah. yeah rather than a um a safety net i guess it feels if it, it just feels intrinsically better to me uh, i don't mm. have a better explanation for it than that it's be- it's because the camaraderie concept leans into the collaborative activity mm, maybe that's yeah, it and yeah. support one another through difficult times and such like a large part of role playing, the very core premise behind it is freedom in a lot of ways. And it comes back to this statement of those who sacrifice freedom for safety deserve neither. And and I think um with regards to what safety mechanics or you know implied or, or explicit that you're using. I shouldn't say that there shouldn't be implied safety mechanics. There should be explicit safety mechanics. So if you want to do the, um, uh, I, I, I showed it to you and I can't even think of what the heck it's called. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. What you just said, I will not (laughs) abandon you. I will not abandon you. Uh, if, if that's what you choose to use, uh, then before the game is played, that's everyone knows that's what's being used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think it's it's required that games have a safety mechanism? I don't think that games need the safety mechanisms okay. within the text. I think that players should be made aware of safety mechanisms. No, that's not what I was asking. I, I'm saying, do, do does D and D need a safety mechanism the same as Monster Hearts does? Yes. Hmm. I would say no. Yeah, I would I, also tend I, to say no. I, I think a game needs to be aware of how readily or how far it will go to un. It will take the places the players to unsafe places. Well, and if that's D&D is about often, death and murder, that, so no, it isn't. Yeah, but don't, be, don't be silly. That, that's that's ridiculous. It is, but not about the players. No, um, it's about reducing. No, it's not. It's a cartoon. Yeah, it's, Any, it's anyway. Cartoonified form. It's hard to. If you're freaked out by D and D, you might have problems. Yeah. See, that, that's that's my point. That's my point. Like something like D and D doesn't say or not say it will. The players will end up in an unsafe place. And it really doesn't care whether or not that happens. So it doesn't need a safety mechanism, but something like Monster Hearts or Cthulhu kind of does because those are kind of rolled into the game itself. No, I think, though, I'm going to disagree hard because it's not about... Like I said, we don't know the things we don't know. So we that's the point of a safety mechanism is to, to be made aware and to have an opportunity to stop, slow down, change course. And, and D&D can definitely use that, even if 
for so much as, you know, not wanting to do a scene in water, um, which, you know, might not trigger very many people, but it, if we have the ability to deal with that um, in a good way, that, that's important to that person. D&D specifically has forces acting upon it where it does not want to acknowledge that there are unsafe places for players. Okay, so that's that was just my comment to Rob, like that D&D, it's not necessarily a good thing that they don't write it into their rules, but I'm just saying for me to play D&D, or at least going forward, because I definitely haven't always done this, but that I'm going to have rules, and that's that's uh, needed for, for my game. Yeah. Um, can I, okay, I'm going to go back a little bit, um, because mm -hmm. I want to talk about, uh, I will not abandon you again real quick, because you mentioned that a little bit earlier, Rob, and I had not mm -hmm. heard about it. So I looked it up real quick and I found a very different definition than what you said it was. And I'm a little confused. Okay. Um, well, I, I got the, I got it from Jonathan. So, so the definition I found. And this is from bigmodel.info is this is when a group plays in full knowledge that personally disturbing or otherwise emotional may arise and that no one at the table will necessarily soften its impact to protect anyone else. Um, and that was to me what I thought I will not abandon you meant, but you were saying it was something different. What what was different about that? I, I said it was a mutual <laughs> no, it's a it's a it's a it's a stated um uh, what is it? It's, it's a stated premise of mutual support. I mean, the, let, me, let me find the original formulation. Well, okay. So the thing that I'm coming at here is with this definition, it seems to me that because it specifically says no one at the table necessarily soften its protect anyone else. Um, the mutual, and maybe I'm just reading into this wrong, but the mutual support you were talking about um, I don't think necessarily comes into that um, because we're talking about not softening the impact. Whereas to me, mutual support means kind of softening that impact and or right, hang on. Uh, moving in a different way. From the sounds of what is being described, it sounds more akin to the initial impact is when it happens, you're not going to be like, okay, cut back on this. Um, we'll go back a step it didn't happen that way. It's more like, no, this totally happened this way, but we're there for you now that it has happened. We're here to support you after the fact. Yeah, here's the, I put the original formulation in the, it's so there it is there. Fairgames-rpg.com, that one. Okay. Which does the listeners no good, so. I, I know. Well, I'll leave a post in the thing. Mentioned right at the very top, it says, I will not abandon you, does not equal nobody gets hurt, right? Yeah, Th and those that, are two different like styles of play. Yeah, I know, but if you keep if you read down five lines, both are reciprocal systems. If one person is per person pushing, eh, fuck it, I can't read it. If one person is pushing buttons and the other is supposed to just take it and not respond, the button pusher is a bully and the relationship is abusive. Notice I'm talking about the characters here. This is all about the players at the table in any game. I bet I could get just as hurt playing White Wolf or GURPS as I could playing Dogs in the Vineyard or Sorcerer. It sure helps be clear in what kind, which kind of social contract is expected. If the players are not at all clear, sooner or later, sooner or later, you'll run into 
an NGH player. What is the NGH? I can't remember what that is. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets hurt player. Uh, and they will get hurt sometimes in a big way. If you get a I will not abandon you player in a nobody gets hurt game, the player will wind up transgressing other people's boundaries and come off like a jerk. That player may also feel like everyone is pulling their punches. So it's everybody. So it is stating up front that everybody has to be on the same page, and that it is okay. And then we're going to go down to uh, when a game has solid support for handling highly intense emotional scenes, which are most likely to trigger players, I suspect, and in my experience, the tendency for the game is to require. I will not abandon you play. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the tendency for the game to require I will not abandon you play is high. Here I think of Dogs in the Vineyard, Sorcerer, and some to some extent Bacchanal. I mean, te- mechanical support for getting into and out of emotionally charged conflict and solid writing that lets players understand the reasons why they might allow themselves to be pushed emotionally. This is where the designer gets to say, this, will, this can create heavy stuff. I know that. I'm prepared for that. Here's what I've thought about it, and here's how I recommend you handle it in my game. This is the designer saying, I will not abandon you. I will give you mechanics to help you deal with this when it comes up, and I'm with you in this. Um, let me see. And then she responded later. So I like... So both. if it's a designer speaking to the players, it's, it's a very different thing from players speaking to each other. It's, That's true. She There's more than one thing in what she wrote here, and she is McGay Baker, um, mm-hmm. the original sort of concept creator um because they mentioned the players and and some also what the designer might do in an i will not abandon you situation oh and maybe i should have read the social agreements at the beginning which is kind of important okay in i will not abandon you the social agreements are i as a player expect to get my buttons pushed and i will not abandon you my fellow players when that happens i will remain present and engaged and play through the issue as a player, I expect to push buttons, and I will not abandon you, my fellow players, when you react. I will remain present and engaged as you play through the issue. So that that's what it is. That's the mutual support I was talking about. Okay. That is totally reasonable. I was thinking about that in a different way. I'm sorry we had to go off on this long tangent. Though um, so no, I think is this is cool. actually pretty good. Right. And it, it wasn't about, again, like, it's part of safety is just agreeing on how you're going to be safe. And that's in mm-hmm. everything. That's the, every safety mechanic I've seen. They always talk about it, agreeing and understanding what that mechanic actually is. Yeah, I yeah. think I think there's there's a gloss over of mutual consent that is um, sort of taken for granted because everybody's sitting down to the table at the same time. And mm-hmm. I yeah. think it's easy to ignore that part because of the implicit assumptions of physical presence. But I think. Jonathan, you you know, because I wouldn't have thought D and D would something that needed that sort of safety mechanism, but I even if it's just mentioned at the start of the game, really quick, I think it's probably worth it, uh, particularly if you're playing with a fairly disparate group you don't know too well. Yeah. I think that that might that might be re- that's reasonable. I think. And I think even in the context of your home game, right? Like, yeah. At the start of a campaign, you know, it's a new thing. So you say, hey, remember that thing that we do, that we have, you know, underneath the beer bottle, the X card. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like it's it's the formality of it um, can. I'm There's a range, I'm sure. But yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important just to highlight that 
like bringing it back to the topic, it's rights and responsibilities. And I think Jonathan's right that they have every player has a right to safety, and how they choose to employ tools to get to that point, I think, is up to the the table and the game group. And if everyone agrees, then that's great. But I think that should be stated as a right to the player. Yep, and thus yes. players so, have the responsibility to try and keep each other safe as well. Right. Yeah, the the right to safety leads a responsibility to always be reading the room. Mm -hmm. Or to use the safety mechanics and respect them if they are in play. I, yeah, I define mm -hmm. safety in that context, though, because how far do you go with safety? Like, even in just the example that we just covered, like, there are those who want to never, ever get hurt or have any negative things happen to them, and then there's some that it's like, safety just means that you're not going to fall off a cliff without, you know, somebody there to catch you kind of thing. Like, there's a big difference between those two mindsets. Like, I don't think you could even play my game, period, under the never get hurt mindset. You can't do it. Like, so, once you're looking yeah. at the very core premise of what makes you an individual, who you are, and facing your inner demons, you're going to get hurt, period. There's no way to get around that. Like, as soon as that is the topic of discussion, you don't get through that without, you know, some hardship and facing some inconvenient truths. Like, it's gonna be rough. That's kind of the nature and of the game. That's kind of where the separation of player and character becomes a safety mechanism. Is if, if those concepts, if those selves are not independent, then... Anything that happens in the fiction to the character can creep into the space of the table and become personal. 100%. Well, like we were talking during the break, like, it's really difficult to play something that you do not have any experience or understanding in. So, the problem is, your character's are basically a reflection on yourself in some way, shape, or form. They tend to be exaggerated in some way. Like, some aspect of your personality gets expanded in a way that it subsumes their entire personality, or some minor part that you just find kind of interesting and you want to explore. Like, there's some part of you in each of your characters. Some, sometimes it's a small amount, sometimes it's a large amount, sometimes it's almost the whole thing but there is that not a is total true. disconnect between the two. Okay, yeah, that is true that the character is in some way a reflection of the player, but that... And no, you're probably not going to be able to fully separate those two, but if the game allows those two to be the same, to be one thing, then... It, it's easier for transgressions or wrongs or whatever to creep out of the fiction and into the real world and vice versa. Yeah, that's kind of one of the reasons why I very explicitly don't even cover 
like avatar characters. Like I mentioned that you can make an avatar, it is highly discouraged. To um, try to bring this back to the topic and, and sort of resolve this issue, um, one of the responsibilities that I had written down for um, players that engage in my game is that what I've done in the rules is written down uh, an etiquette of play. And these are the guidelines that I set out as the designer that I think will maximize everyone's ability to engage with the story. And I think that's a good place for Cascade to be able to introduce the things that would be the right table etiquette to um, be conducive towards those, ensuring that every player has that right to safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I explicitly call out I will not abandon you on page six. Yeah. Um, because I do want, I, I mean, it is a game where I'm dealing with people who have lost something and it's, it's really likely that somebody at the table will have experienced a loss that a player that a character in the game has experienced. Right. Exactly. So, so I, I, but I do want to put in the player's minds like, Hey, this is, this is a game about this. Um, right. you, you know, and it's okay if it, if, and something else I say specifically is like, listen, this is one like the possibly safest way to confront the thing that scares you is in fantasy, in your imagination. And that if you, if you confront the thing that scares you, you may find that the thing doesn't become less scary, but that you're stronger than you think. And to me, that's, that's sort of putting I don't know how that how to phrase this. It, it's 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 saying you're responsible for your own safety and you are better more more capable than you imagine. And here's a chance if you want to engage with that thing and do it in such a way that you can get close to it without the actual danger of it hurting you. Yeah. And that's um, a that's a very powerful message that you want to impart through the game. And yeah. I think you're absolutely right to say like responsibilities of the player are to ensure that they do these things in order for the outcome to be that everyone can handle these sensitive topics in a constructive way yeah in a way that makes everyone feel like they've accepted and agreed with what is happening at the table mm -hmm. i think that makes perfect sense yeah all right so the last item that i had for this topic was um a player's right to play the game. Um, and by that, I mean, if uh, so you, generally in role-playing games, you have an agent that acts on your behalf or several agents or however you want. Like This can be a character, multiple characters, et cetera. But um, the idea that that character has uh, conveys your actions and that you have the agency to act with that character to participate in the game. Um, and that if there are ways or remove that agency from you, you should be aware of them. Um, if I have a way to whatever, take away your ability to play the game, you need to know that. And I should try to provide you with the right to have control over what happens. So yeah, players have a right to play the game or a right to, was that agency and autonomy within the within the game and to have that not be unduly restricted exactly 
um, and that if there are restrictions, that that should be made clear in the definition of the rules. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as long yeah, as long as those restrictions yeah aren't some as, as long as those restrictions are something that doesn't um, or something that is within the rules of the game or doesn't impinge yep. upon the other rights and responsibilities we talked about, like safety. Exactly. So I think in to sum up this topic, players' rights are to safety and to playing the game, and then responsibilities are to engage with the game and to follow uh, like a table etiquette. And to allow everybody else to have their rights as well. That's that's yes. a that's a piece of it as well because you you have a responsibility to other players to keep them safe as we said and you also have a responsibility to other players to let them play the game as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The the whole thing works on a on a on a sense of equality. Mm -hmm. yep. That's kind of what I see the table etiquette is for, like respecting the GM, respecting the other players, and respecting uh, everyone's ability to to have part of that play experience with you mm -hmm. all right so now we can ask the next thing which actually we talked about quite a bit but i'm not surprised at all which is what do rpgs often leave out um, when we're talking about advising players or teaching role playing and i'm guessing the first thing that a couple of you are going to say is pretty much all of it <laughs> definitely true I mean, it came to mind for a reason. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the main thing RPGs leave out in doing any of this um, is incentive to actually role play. And there is a school of thought that says, oh, you should just role play. You don't need the incentive to show up and play the game. Well, that's fine if you want players to have other incentives in your game. But they're going to have incentives. And you made them. And if the incentives are not to role play, guess what's going to happen a lot of the time? So put some in there. It's not dirty to, to, to incentivize the characters to follow their, to incentivize the players to follow their character state and motivations. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I found it, it doesn't really matter. Like the people that are going to role play are going to role play whether they have an incentive or not. That has never really changed. It's just that the people who, Role play end up getting the incentive for it like it's a bonus for doing something they were already going to do that's Somebody fine who isn't going to do it doesn't follow the incentive mm -hmm. like hardly uh, ever yeah yeah they do definitely do yeah they do it, it depends I, I on, know this at this point yeah this like, is not if an you argument. just give them flat out experience or something no if you're meaning like more like rob's game where you lead them to the concept that's not an incentive that's basically telling them exactly how to do it it's building the game in such a way that they can that's okay. not an incentive i i count those two separate things like if to be clear on that it's like if you set it up so that a pl player's actions in like if they describe what they do in combat if it actually changes the outcome of the combat like, if you say, I roll between his legs, it's like, okay, it actually changes what happens. That is basically an incentive in that case to keep going. That will actually work in that case. If you're just like, 
if you describe rolling between his legs, you get two experience points. That does not work. Hardly ever. I, okay. No. Um, but go for it, Jonathan. Well, I think you, the, the example is too um, focused, I think. I don't know if that's the right term. Uh, when we, and not everyone does this the same way. Some are very explicit about you did a thing, so experience. Uh, others are more like in the broad picture is are you role playing your character a certain way and then experience. So um, the examples was a little too focused, I think. Yeah. The, um, the got talking about the second part that Jonathan said, um, the games that give a basic or like basic uh, broad things. Um, XP rewards for role playing. Um, the thing I was thinking that popped in my mind when I started talking about this was uh, playing Blades in the Dark, which uh, has, I know I've talked about a lot recently, but I've been playing it a bunch recently, or running it a bunch recently. Um, and I've definitely seen players who the first session of Blades in the Dark won't, won't role play necessarily, it will role play in a different way. And then as soon as I go, okay, guys, here's how XP works, you get this much, you know, you get XP for approaching a problem in a way that is respective to your playbook. And then you get XP for expressing your beliefs, drives, heritage, and background. And then you get XP for dealing with your vices and traumas. Um, and I have seen players who weren't role-playing at the start go from, okay, not really role-playing to, I want to get this XP, so I'm keeping this in my head to, you know, approach problems in the way my playbook kind of should and to express my character's drives and mm -hmm. etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and that's I'm... certainly works within other systems as well, but I've, I, I don't think that that's true that incentives don't work. Incentives do work most of the time, if not all the time. I think maybe we've jumped the track on this question. It's like, we're talking about incentivizing behavior that is um true to the character mm. but the question to me seemed more like what is the incentive that brings the player to the table in the first place i maybe i think that's part of the question but i think that the um what do uh, if if rpgs often leave out incentive to role play which i think they do then that is fair game for answering this question. Um, and I don't think they leave out incentive to come to the table. I don't think that happens that often. I think the incentive to get to the table is there. It's just, it just, it takes different forms in many different RPGs. Some of it's, some of the incentive to get to the table is, I, oh, I can do anything with this game, meaning I can do something with this game I couldn't do with many of the other games I played. Or I get to be in Star Wars in this game and that's good enough for me. Or I, get to be Gimli from Lord of the Rings and that's all I really want out of life for the next four hours. You know, so it's it's I think the incentive to get to the table is 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 baked in. And I mean you can design for that. Obviously you want to design for that because you want people to play the game, hopefully, but I don't think it's um I don't think it's something RPGs leave out. Well Maybe they don't leave it out, but they leave it completely implicit, and maybe that's okay. But what I was leading, the point I was 
going to lead to is that the act of role playing can be its own incentive. Sure. Yeah, because role playing is fun. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I have no problem with that. It does depend on the player as well. I obviously from yeah. what I've seen is that generally, if a player does not feel like their actions matter, then they won't bother role play. Like you can't force them. You can't throw experience at them if it's not going to change anything, then it won't do anything. Like, they might try it out once or twice, but as soon as they find out that the only thing they're getting for it is the experience points, they dry up immediately. If it's something like you were describing, like, um, why did I just blink on the name of it? It's not in the vineyard, it's the... What, one of the dark's? Yeah, Blades in the Dark. How did I forget the name of that? Anyway, <laughs> and then Blades in the Dark. Like, Blades in the Dark is really heavily structured so that when you do stuff in role-playing, it, it reinforces it. It makes it so that it's easy to picture what's happening. It's easy to describe what's happening. It's easy for everything to just basically snowball. It's just... If you give them like the experience, it's just basically nudging the snowball down the hill. Like if you nudge the snowball and you're trying to nudge it uphill, it's just going to roll right back down to where it started again. Like you have to have the game itself structured in such a way that it will work. Can we then amend the list of rights and responsibilities to include that at least one person at the table has to be keeping others engaged mm, i uh i don't like putting that as a at least one person like putting that as somebody's responsibility um putting well, that ostensibly as one responsibility, kind I, of everyone at least yes, one everyone's yeah no that's why i said it that way at least yeah. one person because at ostensibly person. it falls yeah. to the gm but no, it should sorry. ideally it sh be everyone. No, but it should be everyone and not, it I don't think, I think my problem with it is it shouldn't be at least one. It should be everyone. I'm going to actually disagree with everybody. I'm going to state <sighs> that you cannot force somebody to be engaged if they don't want to be engaged or if then leave they the are not in a mindset yeah. to be engaged. That's, All you yeah. can do is present the option to them. You can't force them to do so no one's forcing no one's talking about forcing anybody to do anything like if you're sitting down to an rpg there's an implicit agreement that you're going to try and if you yeah, don't but... then go away like I, who the hell wants to be there you like nobody at the table wants you there one and then you don't want to be there so why are you there no i mean it in the sense that you you do have people where there are certain things that they are obviously very engaged in when they it comes up like i've seen players where Anytime combat comes up, they light right up. They're immediately in it. They're doing all sorts of crazy shit. But once you're back in town, it's like, yeah, call me to like just nudge me awake when you're done. And... So I like I really agree with you, Kat. Um, but I, but I don't call those people unengaged. And and when I use the term engaged, which might be different from how the other people are using it, like when I say engaged with a narrative, I mean when they take their actions, it, it responds directly to what the narrative is spitting out. Um, as opposed to 
um, trying to use their actions to do something completely counter to what the narrative is presenting. Okay. And so it doesn't mean, at least when I say engaged, it doesn't mean that they have to take action every time or always be talking. It just means that when they do something, they're doing something that's what the game is asking for. Okay. And yeah. to, 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 to defend my statement, again, because somehow it needs more defending, the reason why I said at least one person is because there are games who put the responsibility for keeping everyone engaged solely on one person. Well, those games are garbage. <laughs> yeah, but one of them is the most played game there is. <laughs> that game's garbage, too. <laughs> to explain my definition of engagement, because I think this is actually a term that we do need to specify to actually figure out where we're on here. Like, the way I was defining engagement is that the individual is actually alert, paying attention to the game. They're not playing with their phone. They're not distracted or doing anything else. They're actually... They're asserting themselves into the narrative or or the activity or at least as appropriate. being somewhat active. Yeah, like, even if they're sort of a passive player for the most part, they mostly just go along with what other people do. Like, they're not the leader, but it's like okay, well, I'm following along and I'm going to do some stuff while we're there, that kind of thing. That's kind of different from the definition Jonathan was using. So, yeah. That's, I mean, that's pretty similar, ultimately. <laughs> um, it, there are some important differences. <laughs> man, remember when we, like, before we started this, we were like, yeah, let's try and not talk about semantics. I mean, I know that that's like the pot calling you're a really black kettle. <laughs> yeah, I, I almost said that an hour ago. <laughs> um, I I just I had a a game, um, and one of the players was autistic, and they just had a very difficult time with the um, uh, social structure of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and but they really enjoyed and engaged with the the combat structure and. Um, so it was just easy to, easier for them to not play up, you know, their social situations, uh, which didn't mean that they weren't present um, for them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just why I, I just, I guess I put that bit of the, the caveat on engagement is it's just, it, it's not 100% all the time, but it is 100% the game um, appropriate for the game. Uh, the the engagement is oh, okay. The, uh, appropriate. appropriate. Yeah, as long as it's appropriate for the, yes, that's fine. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not saying like everybody has to be like maximally engaged at all times. It's just like if you're, but if if you're not engaged at all, then yeah, I mean, there's if probably you're at something. zero, then yeah. like that, that's that's a problem, right? Because there's probably something better for you to be doing. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree to some degree that, yes, you should definitely have things presented for everybody to, you know, do. Like, if you're going to have, like, an entire session of Shadowrun where it's just the Decker, 
that's not very engaging to anybody else. So yeah, I can agree with you on like from that perspective. Okay, well, uh, okay. So then can we then say, going back to the question we were talking about a little while ago, in do RPGs often leave out the fact that everyone is responsible for everybody else's engagement to a certain extent. Yeah, I think I th they often leave it out. Some leave it out by design, was my point earlier. But in modern thinking, that's kind of counter to the, the, the leading edge of what we know the experience to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and as I, as I said, um, and at least in my opinion, the games that put all of that um, on the GM or on that, that role, and it's always the GM. There's no other game. I, there's no game I've ever read that puts it on one player um, or puts it on one PC player, I should say. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that those games are just garbage. And I, honestly like don't that put that makes gming it like makes gming a service and a, a job rather than an equal player around the table i think yeah that's the modern school of thought is that <clears throat> everything needs to be more distributed instead of piled on one person's shoulders yeah mm -hmm. i think that's true so, mm -hmm. one question because I'm not sure how you're actually making use of this. How would you describe like a non-GM player being responsible for someone else's engagement? Like what would they do? Like what oh would this like, look I, like? I actually know what that looks like. There's a game that did it. Oh. Uh the original version of Wraith uh from White Wolf actually had so everybody had their wraith character, and then every, somebody else had your shadow. Oh, and there's another player oh, that was <laughs> that oh, was resp actually responsible for tempting you with the stuff you shouldn't do. And they were actually, in a sense, responsible for your character's engagement with the game world, because it was this. The shadow was intended to be, if I'm remembering this correctly, was intended to push you towards bad decisions. Like it was like a Jungian, like Carl Jung, Jungian shadow, uh, but as another character and that had powers and stuff that you didn't have. And you could access those powers if you did what the shadow wanted. So there was, it was weird, man. I, we tried to play Wraith a couple of times and it never felt like we were doing it right. Um, so I don't know that it's a tenable situation like that uh, oh right yes i'm just one i it's not really relevant i was gonna say something but i don't think it's that important essentially wraith and my feelings on it are is a really good way of tracking how i've grown as a person in 10 years but that's interesting yeah to uh my simpler example of I mean, that's, I, I didn't know that and happened and that's cool. Um, but my simpler version of this is just, um, you know, a player 
turning to the person next to him or next to him or her or them, I should say, and saying, right here. Um, okay. Um, turning to their, you know, turning to the person to their right or left and saying, oh, so what are you doing right exactly. now? Exactly. Or how are, you know, exactly. yeah, what are you doing right now? How are you involved in this? Mm -hmm. Or, hey, you have this, I know you have this power. Can you help us by doing this? Games absolutely rarely tell players that they can do that, nevertheless, that they should. Yep. Okay. Generally, seen as, as a, it's seen as an imposition, I think. Yeah, the problem. See, yeah. I wasn't sure how you were going to put this, but now that I, I see where you're going for it, like this is something I'd already noticed and already explicitly built stuff into the game to kind of avoid that situation because i have noticed in several games i've played like it, it's it's only occasionally but i have gone into entire full campaigns characters never even knew each other's names they never really interacted with each other it was just kind of they were together because that's just what was assumed that you did, and they didn't really have any interaction with one another, and I wanted to make sure that wouldn't happen again. So, yeah, I totally agree with you in this case, then. I just wasn't sure how you'd meant it. Hmm. Yeah, and some mechanical ways that some games do it, particularly in Powered by, by the Apocalypse, but as Bonds in Dungeon World, uh, Strings in Monster Heart, and Hex in uh, Apocalypse World, so there, there are. You can address it just in the text and say, you know, this is how you can sort of interact with the players at the table, or you can address it in mechanics and have the the characters interact, which engages the players. Yeah, there's a difference between having mechanics that. <clears throat> that precipitate characters engaging with each other. That's entirely different from telling players that as one player to another to, to yank them back into the game if they've fallen out of it. it I mean, they're different. I wouldn't say they're entirely different. They, they both engage the player. Yes, but one of them is doing it directly and the one who is indirect through the character. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm just saying there's, and when we approach this mm -hmm. as a designer, you know, writing a blurb in a page that might not get read by every player, um, it nevertheless is important when it's mechanically tied to the character, it, it becomes automatic in play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it, it gives you that good prompt of you can you know, look down at your sheet and go, oh, I have a bond with this person. And so then I immediately know that's I have a, a basis for interaction and a reason to try and keep them engaged. Hmm. All right. So then what else do RPGs offer? Um, a, that they're a storytelling medium, and B, how to construct a story. This is about role-playing, though. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I agree, yes. But I think the way I would phrase your first point, your A, 
we're we're dude 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 we're we're yeah. talking about role playing I, like I know. specifically we're not talking about story i know That's, okay let me right. let me finish let all me finish right. i'm this is going to open up a can of worms all right nope it's that okay. no it, it's that these are is that you as players are all authors and are all collaborating together and so you should be essentially as much as you can yes ending um and that that is a a basic tenet of role playing as well so it's is that they leave out that it's collaborative the part of the storytelling bit that feeds into the role playing and that you all act as authors at the same time collaboratively that's an aspect of what i said which is that they omit the fact that these are in some ways even like minimally a storytelling medium and then by extension they leave out how to structure a story actually i would also because if there's no story to to identify with you really don't have much of a texture to latch on to to facilitate your role playing. I would expand upon what Fred was saying and say it's not just a matter of you know the it being a collaborative story but also that the actual characters that are present should have an impact on that story. Like, if you read through, like, a lot of the current um, modules for, like, D&D, like, the 5th edition modules very frequently have a habit of just basically running on rails, ignoring what characters are present. Like, it's exactly the same story, exactly the same story points and story beats and so on, regardless of who you bring to the table or what they do. If you have a completely different party, completely different personalities, uh, completely different problem solving, nothing changes. And I think that's like a really huge problem that I've seen several GMs be very vehement in defending this playstyle where they basically dictate to the players. Essentially, they're just reading them as their, their novel. Like, the players themselves are not actually playing a game. They're just being read to what happens. It's really weird. Yeah, that... Okay, I feel like all of this is kind of missing the point of what I said, so I'm going to abandon it and just respond. <laughs> <clears throat> so, the, the, the problem... Okay, part of how to tell a story is the attaching the characters into the the narrative and you're right cat most published adventure modules don't do that and the whole concept of doing that is kind of lost on a lot of players there's some that do i i totally want to give props to the ones that do but it is a really common problem yes but the whole concept of a published adventure has the problem of the author of that cannot know who the characters are and therefore cannot 
give them attachment points in the in their narrative. So it then falls on to the GM to do that. Because the GM does know who the characters are. Yeah. I I think that you can totally do more, like you can build it even into the very system and premise of the game itself. Like basically Seorsa is built in such a way that it's essentially a giant module, but it's got a lot of leeway on what to do with it. Like there are some key points that do happen, some information for the GM to work with, but it's not handled in you have to do this and it is exactly like this every single time. It's it's very designed from the ground up to be very modular to react to like what the players do. And I think that that's something that just in general, games should really probably be built in such a way that they open this possibility up or at least mention it, if nothing else. Yeah, well, if if the game doesn't do it natively, then it still falls to the GM or whoever's most in charge of the narrative to do that. Because part of... Okay, all of our games, or all games, that that is, engage the players by giving them some kind of task. But what they don't often do is exploit the character for who they are. Yeah. Like, Adventure Module A doesn't say, well, if there is a character who has you know, one of their parents has disappeared years ago. Here's that parent. They it's don't do that in it. Too explicit? Like, just tell, in more basic terms, tell the GM, your, your characters have backstories, they have plot hooks. Use them. Exactly. Like, it Very few games do that. Tell them that. Actually, mm-hmm. one thing I want to put in really quickly as well is just basic storytelling concepts in general, because games don't tend to cover this at all like even a half page which covers like very basic concepts like the hero's journey or his three-act story setup stuff like that just basic methods of storytelling that they can use to figure out how to tell a coherent story that we already know through thousands of years of writing that these work like those would be really handy things for just anybody to have. Yes, and now we've come back to my statement about storytelling. Yeah. So the the crucial missing part of most RPGs is the part about how to set up, how to lay out a premise, how to present the con the 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 central conflict how to manage travel over an arc plot devices like red herrings or Chekhov's gun or yada, yada, yada. Like you really have to like the best role players and GMs at least have some facsimile of the knowledge they would get from story writing 101. So I think the reason, okay. So now that we've gone a 
to your original point, I think the reason that me and Rob are trying to subvert it somewhat was that we're trying trying to keep it within the confines of straight role playing. Whereas I think that that is tangentially related. I mean, it's it's something that feeds into it, but I don't think it is in in the moment to moment role playing. I don't think it has the same impact that other things we've been talking about do. Yep, I think it is the moment to moment impact. Mm. No, it scaffolds it, but it's not it's not the thing itself. I I I would agree with that. It is scaffolding rather than the direct thing. But yeah, like building the scaffolding is no. a large part of the designer's job, I think. Uh-huh. But, uh, allowing the other participants to build the scaffolding, I think is part of it. But but the the, oh. the scaffolding is what you don't need that there for role play. It's good to have. You don't need it. Okay. Yeah, we did say earlier what you absolutely need to have. In which case, yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. Yeah, it's good to have that for for sure. But you don't need. You you actually don't need a story structure for 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 players to get into role playing. Sometimes you can have an emergent story structure, and you don't you're not aware of the story the structure of the story until it, it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, you pretty much every even I mean human humans very... do that just naturally. We just do that. We we yeah. are pretty good at that. Sometimes it goes off the rails and goes bananas. Thing, they'll make their own story about yeah. what happened. Whatever. Um, but I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's. I think it's good to have, but it's not. It's not a baseline thing you have to include. You don't need that scaffolding. But I, your game is probably better for it if it has it. But what do you need it? And what? What? It, here's the other question: Is it a tool that the players are using? too effectively role play. And I have to say no at that point. It's it's something that the designer and GM, if there is one, uses to put to 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 give the players prospects to role play at, which was something we were talking about. But it's not it's not necessary for the scaffolding and the story structure to be there for the players to 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 pretend they're other people. So that's where I come down on it. Yes. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with Rob. And uh, but um, again, back to my point, because I I think I was trying to spin it in this direction that it's related is that all uh, and this varies a bit from game. game, um, But uh, well, this doesn't all role playing is collaborative and emergent and this varies a bit from game to game, but I think is generally true. All players around the, all players, which includes the GM and all the participants around the table, are authors of a narrative within the setting. Now, they may have different authorial duties, but they are all authors and thus have things that they can do and ways to affect the story. Um, and in fact, a lot of the things that RPGs often leave out is what does being an author in this context mean and what authorial power can you wield um, and thus what can you affect within role play 
I think for the most part, we've referred to that for players as agency. Not necessarily. I mean, but also, I also see it as sort of like a, uh, you contribute to the, not only the story that happens by your character's actions, but by the interactions you have about the game. Um, now, what's his name now? Um, Matt Colville will talk about what he wants when he's playing a game is that his players tell stories in the parking lot after they're done. And that that is sort of the aspect of you as a player are responsible for the story that happens, not only at the table, but I think also a, an element of you taking it from our table into your memories and reliving that. Yeah, the 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 post game discussion that happens is kind of the the validation that the game was good and well, or bad. If that's what the discussion is about yeah, and there's but also at least it was at least it was visceral. And there's always the part of being an author uh, that I, I there's a, a fellowship does this, and I think we talked about this before. Wherein, if you choose to play the elf, you have authorial power over everything elvish, pretty much. Um, you have final say on all things because you are the elf. And that's part of that authorial power is not just what agency can your character take, but what things can you push on within the setting, within the meta of the narrative. Um, as a player. Yeah, I didn't mean agency just as the power to take character actions. It's the power to affect the the fiction itself at, at an existential point. Like, what is in it? What are the true things about it? But also um, kind of taking the wheel and steering the narrative itself. Yeah. All right. So I think pretty soon we're going to finish this up, but does anyone have any final parting thoughts they want to uh, share something? I think I'm good. I think I'm good. I got, uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. I guess we're done. <laughs> All right, then we have been Flail Forward. Um, thanks for joining us again. Um, and this yeah, if you actually... stuck through it, man, good for you. <laughs> good on you. Yeah, like I'm, I'm proud of you. Did a good job. Uh, like, go buy yourself an ice cream. I know yeah. it's nighttime when you listen to this, but congratulations you can it on finished paying your penance. Yeah, you made your father proud. Good for you. <laughs> um, but aside from that, you can find us on pretty much all the social medias as flail forward. Um, so, you know, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Pornhub, Christian Mingle, farmersonly.com. <laughs> <laughs> We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and you can find us on all your podcatchers. So subscribe to our SS feed. And we out. Mm-hmm.